So last week we finished Zechariah 3, and I will tell you it is my hope to get through 4 and 5 tonight. What we had last time is Joshua the high priest, and we had several messianic symbols that were in there. You had this single stone with seven eyes, you had the branch and the anointed one and so forth. So what we're going to do now is get the vision of the golden lampstand and several other things. So we're in chapter 4. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. Not sure whether this is a continuous vision or whether there's some time interval between them. The commentary that I've been reading indicates that they're all sort of of a piece, one vision in steps, but I don't know. Then verse 2, he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. So that's what he sees. I will tell you there are some translation differences in just that. Commentary that I've been reading says that those seven lips are seven pipes that go to each lamp. The Tanakh and several other things, I think New King James has just one pipe going from the bowl to each lamp. But in the underlying Hebrew, it's kind of ambiguous. I'm an English standard, and the way English standard reads is there's one bowl, seven lamps, and 49 pipes. What you've got is you've got a menorah, seven lamps. Then you have a bowl, which is a reservoir. Between the bowl and each of the lamps, there are either one or seven pipes. The bowl is connected to an olive tree, which represents never-ending oil, if you will. The olive tree fills the bowl, and then the bowl parcels the olive oil out to the seven lamps. And the question in the translation, various translators do it differently. Some of them will have seven lips or pipes, one to each of the lamps. Others will have seven lips or pipes on each lamp. I don't know what you do with that. I'm just pointing it out that it exists. So we're all the way down to verse 4 now. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, All right, now the first thing to understand, he asked, what's going on here? What's his vision? He does not get an answer right away. We will not find out what those things are until we get to the end of the chapter. So you have a thing in the middle which has nothing to do with the question as near as I can tell. Verse 5, then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Obviously, Zerubbabel is the governor who has been appointed by Persians, and he's in charge of the group that got sent back to rebuild the temple. And we said last time that they have the authority to build the temple, but they have no authority to build a wall around the city. So this temple is in an open city, if you will. And it won't be until Nehemiah that they get permission to rebuild the walls. And by the way, Zerubbabel literally means planted in Babylon, which is to say this guy was probably born during the 70 years of exile. So, verse 6 again, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, one of the things that's going on here is you've got surrounding people who are not happy with having Jews come back to Jerusalem. And so the idea here is you are not going to be able to do this by your own strength. You're not going to be able to overcome the resistance and complaints. It's only going to be by the grace of God and by the power of God that you're going to be able to get this done. Verse 7, who are you, O great mountain? And I suspect that the mountain there represents the obstacles that they are facing as they're trying to rebuild the temple. It's an obstacle in their way. So who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Zerubbabel, who is executing the rebuilding of the temple, is going to succeed, and all of the mountains, if you will, the obstacles before him are going to be leveled out, and he's going to be able to go through, and he's going to be able to complete the job. He shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone. The top stone, I would say, would be a capstone, which is representative of finishing the job. It's the last stone that gets put in place as the construction is finished. So he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, notice the shift here. Before, it's the angel who's talking to him. He's asking the question. So come back up here. Verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord. Then he said to me. So the angel is talking to him. Down here in verse 9, then the word of the Lord came to me, saying. Now, I don't know whether the word of the Lord came to him directly as a prophet or through this angel who has been speaking. I'm just pointing out grammar here. It may be significant, but I don't have any idea what the significance is. So verse 8 again. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small beginnings shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. A couple of things going on here. Obviously, Zerubbabel laying the foundation and completing it goes with the previous answer given by the angel and here the answer given by the word of the Lord. Despising the day of small things, don't know what that means. Speculation based on one of the commentaries is, you remember when the uh, second temple was completed, there were people there who had seen the first one before it was destroyed and they wept 
because it was nowhere near as glorious as the first, and not only that, the presence of the Lord was not there. So those who despised the day of small things may be those people. Don't know who else it would be. And then they shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Let me back up a minute. I used to be an engineer. And one of the jobs that I was on was building a bulk mail center in Dallas. And I wasn't in charge of the project. I was one of the government engineers. And I was in charge of the structural steel and machinery installation. So they're putting up all sorts of structural steel all over the place. And one of the things that they would do is they would occasionally not get things plumb. And so I'd walk around and I'd look at their work as they did it, and I would check to see if it was plumb and square and in the right place and so forth. And the other thing I did is when the drawings were wrong, I had to figure out how to fix it. But the idea of Zerubbabel then having a plumb line at the end of the job could be he is going now to check the job to make sure that it is built correctly. That could be what it means. could also mean that he is the builder. It says the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. Well, Zerubbabel didn't lay the whole foundation by himself. Lots of people did, but since he is the governor, he's in charge, the metaphor there is Zerubbabel laid the foundation, and here then Zerubbabel has the plumb line, which is making sure that the superstructure is straight, square, etc. Now, remember he asked the question back at the beginning, what's going on with the lamp and the bowls and the olive tree, right? All right, so now we get down to uh, verse 10 and a half, and we finally get the answer to that question. Now, I've got no idea why the structure is set up that way. I'm just, again, pointing it out. It, that's what it is. So these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? In other words, he has having trouble getting the angel's attention, I guess. He has to ask him now three times, what is this? Verse 13, he said to me, do you not know what these are? Well, I told you I didn't know what they were 10 verses ago. I still don't know what they are all very humorous, but the other thing that occurs to me, and I just got this on the fly, and I have no idea what to do with it, so if somebody comes up with something to do with it, by all means, jump right in. I'm just wondering if the thing in the middle about Zerubbabel was, in fact, some kind of an answer, and the angel was saying, you still don't understand? That may be what's going on there. And if that's the case, I don't understand either. But if somebody here does, by all means, jump up and chime in. So he asked twice about the olive trees. Verse 13, he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. 
Now that is quoted again in Revelation. So let's go to Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Something just occurs to me as I'm doing this now. Zerubbabel has a plumb line. A surveyor has a plumb line. Revelation, we are given a measuring staff to measure Jerusalem. So what that may be is the connection between those two things, and that may be why that's the answer. What I'm saying is the metaphor here, Zerubbabel has a plumb line. A plumb line could be an inspector. It can also be a builder or a surveyor. Then you have in Revelation 11, I, John, was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Well, what is Zerubbabel building? Temple of God. And then we have the two witnesses in, in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Back in Zechariah, these seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. And then down in verse 14 in Zechariah, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the whole point here is looking at or seeing or patrolling or watching the entire earth. The comment was that the commentary that Tom read says the two anointed ones are Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. In other words, a king and a priest, which is again a messianic sign. So then you have the two anointed ones who are the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And let's go on for a minute. So I'm back in Revelation 11, picking it up at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Can you say Christmas? And exchange presents because these two prophets had been torment to those who dwell on the earth. And of course, after three and a half days, they come back up and everybody says, oh, shoot, or words to that effect. So the reason back in Zechariah that I am not convinced that it is Zerubbabel and Joshua, although it may be a double meaning, if you will, is because you see the same images here in Revelation, 
And there it looks very much to me like Moses and Elijah. And you remember talking on Shabbat about Moses and Elijah. And those two guys, between them, had no problem whatsoever slaughtering people that were idolaters. Elijah slaughtered 850 of them, and Moses slaughtered 3,000 at the golden calf. So the fact that these two guys come back and are the two witnesses doesn't bother me at all. But what I'm seeing is a connection, if you will, between the Zerubbabel passage and the Revelation passage. I'm saying it may be talking about the two anointed ones being Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. At this point in the Bible, it isn't clear that they are the same person. We don't know that until after the resurrection. So anyway, do with that as you please. I'm going to go on to more fun stuff. It gets funner. Let's go on to chapter 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So, 20 cubits by 10 cubits. That measurement shows up earlier, and I will show you where it is. So there's my little diagram of the holy place. And 30 feet by 15 feet is 20 cubits by 10 cubits. And that's the holy place, not the holy of holies. Now, the other thing I have drawn in here, and you've all been through this many, many times, so I will go through it quickly, is the entrance to the holy place from outside has five pillars. The entrance from the holy place to the holy of holies has four pillars. And I have, as best I could with my little CAD program, the five pillars are bronze bases, the four pillars are silver bases. And the deal here is, in order to get into the holy place, you have to go through Moses. Five books of Moses. In order to get from the holy place to the holy of holies, you need the gospel, the four gospels. So the idea here of a scroll written on both sides, does anybody know of something else that's written on both sides? The tablets of stone, aren't they? So the tablets that Moses brings down from the mountain are written on both sides, just as the scroll is written on both sides. So what I'm suggesting to you is that what we're talking about is the holy place, and what we're talking about is the law of Moses, and the two things that are mentioned there are stealing and lying, which are both forbidden in the law of Moses. What I'm suggesting to you here is this scroll represents Torah, and the holy place, which you can only get into through Moses. I don't know why 
theft and false swearing are the two poster children here. I'm sure there's a good reason for it, but among many things in Zechariah, that's one of them I don't understand. But I will suggest to you that the metaphor here is the holy place in the tabernacle, and we're talking about the scroll being the law of Moses. And in order to get in there, you have to pass through the five pillars, and you all know your tabernacle construction, and the bases of the pillars going in are bronze, the top is silver. So it rests on judgment, if you will, but it goes up to grace. And the four have silver bases, which represents blood or the blood of Yeshua or grace or whatever, and it goes up to gold. I'm suggesting that that's what those symbols mean. Not sure what else to do with it. All right, now we come to the fun part. Verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. So something is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So take a minute to unpack all that. The first place, the basket there is an ephah. Do you know how big an ephah is? Think five-gallon bucket. That is about an ephah. An ephah is 22 liters. A five-gallon bucket is 20 quarts. So an ephah is slightly bigger than a five-gallon bucket. My wife is very petite. I could not get my wife into a five-gallon bucket. And furthermore, you got a lead cover on the sucker. Now, commentary I read says that this wicked woman is like the whore of Babylon, and she's being taken back to Babylon. So we're getting the wickedness out of Egypt and sending it back to Babylon, is what the commentary I read said. I will give you another thought, and I don't know where I got this. It is not original with me. The word for women is olive sheen hay. Michael, what does olive sheen hay spell? Fire. In other words, vowel pointing is the only difference. So, aish is fire, isha is woman. They are both olive sheen hay. So a perfectly acceptable translation without the vowel points is fire in a basket with a lead cover. And we're talking about a five-gallon bucket, remember. And I can see why the translators did not translate it fire because putting fire in a basket is also a problem. At least from their point of view, you have a flammable basket. Now, let's go on. Verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women, same word, two fires coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. They lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who was talking to me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar. Shinar, of course, is Babylon. 
to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Let me give you a thought. Does that look like two fires with wings like a stork? For those out in podcast land, the image I have here is a rear image of, I believe, an F-14. And it's got its wings spread and its afterburners on. So you have two fires that are flying through the air with wings like a stork. So you have two fires that pick up this basket with evil fire inside of it, which has a lead cover, and they take this basket with evil fire inside of it and deliver it to Babylon. Has anybody been reading what Israel is thinking about doing to Iran if they get a nuke? What do you suppose a basket with a lead cover might be? A nuke. And by the way, a five-gallon bucket is about the right size. Whereas a five-gallon bucket with a woman, and even one as lovely and petite as my dear wife, just isn't going to work. Yes, Shinar is the plain of Shinar, but Babylon is on the plain of Shinar. So I can read this as a nuke being taken to Shinar. The comment was that trying to describe things that we regard as commonplace using language and images available to people in biblical times is difficult. So the idea here is that he saw two fires with wings like a stork picking up the basket full of evil fire and flying away. We can very easily see as a twin-engine jet carrying a nuke. Now, obviously, I am not saying, thus saith the Lord, or anything. I'm saying that everything I have said here fits with the Hebrew. And one of the things that we see in Revelation is where Babylon has fallen, and it all happens in a day. One of the things that very well may happen is several of these jet bombers fly over there and nuke them. And I don't doubt that that could happen, especially if the Iranians are in danger of actually producing a nuclear weapon. So, do with that as seems good to you. And you say, this thought is not original with me. I got it from somebody else. I don't remember who, but Monty Judah sort of sticks in my mind as it may have been him. But I've checked all this myself, so it's not relying on somebody saying something on the Internet comment on the stream as to why these two sins, which are bearing false witness and theft, are the ones that are highlighted in the flying scroll. She says that to take the name in vain is like stealing, identity theft, swearing falsely, identity theft, just, she's just thinking. I have no idea. I mean, it's as good as anything I have. I have no better reason than that. The comment was that Perhaps we're talking about covetousness, which, as I am fond of saying, is the mother of all sins anyway. And it's the hidden sin. It's not one that is obvious until you take action. You can do a whole lot of coveting without anybody knowing it because you're not actually doing anything. So at this point, throw it open for comments or questions. So I'm in uh, Zechariah 5.11. He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. 
So verse 11 from the Tanakh. And he answered to build a shrine for it in the land of Shinar. A stand shall be erected for it, and it shall be set down there upon the stand. How many of you know the history of the nuclear weapons program in the United States? Where was the first nuke detonated? At Trinity Flats in New Mexico. And how was it delivered? It was on a tower. Sat on a platform. I spent a year on Anna Weetok cleaning up after the tests in the 50s, and they did a number of tower shots there too, where they set the nuke up on a tower and detonated it statically. So, as I say, chapter 5 looks very much to me like nuclear weapon being delivered from Israel to Shinar, which at least today, would be Iran or Iraq. You're correct. It doesn't say that they are standing in Israel seeing it leave. The comment was it, it isn't necessarily leaving from Israel. It could be leaving from lots of places. It could be leaving from the Persian Gulf. It could be leaving from Germany. It could be leaving from lots of places. It could also be leaving from Israel. Shut